You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. Good morning, Black Forest Chapel. Uh, We're Derek and Courtney Miller. Um, We are really honored to be here with you guys this morning, uh, leading you a a quick time of worship. Um, I want to encourage you through this time, you know, sitting at home with your family, maybe in your pajamas, to sing along. I believe we're going to have the words available. Um, And just worship God, close your eyes, just kind of let these words roll over you and be encouraged this morning. So... you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days, I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, oh, I will see other good Other goodness, God. I will see other goodness. 
있을까 Lord I come I confess Bowing here I find my rest Without you I fall apart
Psalm 145, starting with verse 4, says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Hi, Black Forest Chapel. My name is Lee Heitman. I'm one of the elders here at Black Forest Chapel. And today I have the privilege of leading us through the Lord's Supper. So uh, the first Sunday of every month, we always celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we'll be doing that this morning. I'll be uh, reading through the scriptures this morning, so if you have your Bibles with you, if you could turn to... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'll actually be reading verses 17 through 29. So that's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 29. Just a little background about uh, Corinthians that was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, They believe that he wrote this uh, letter to the church in Corinth, which is located in southern Greece, He wrote this about 55 A.D., and it's believed to be the first biblical record of the institution of the Lord's Supper. I think Paul uh, paints a beautiful picture within this short narrative of the Lord's Supper and shows us some contrasts, too, a beautiful picture of contrasts of worldly chaos and spiritual peace and order. He also shows us disunity and unity. He shows us... Uh, a selfishness of man, of a selfishness of the world versus a great selfless love of Christ and our God. And he also shows us a contrast of death and resurrection. So let's take a look at some of the scriptures. Uh, first, I'm going to read from verses 17 through 22. And you'll see some Mannerisms of the world, those of chaos, of disunity, and of selfishness. Let's read God's word. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions existing among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. So Paul kind of gives us a picture of what the church was like there in Corinth. There was disunity. There was selfishness. uh, There was just chaos within how they were doing the Lord's Supper and their feasting. 
But for us, the Lord's Supper, Paul gives us instructions in some later verses. I'm going to read 27 through 29, because in those verses, Paul gives us how we should conduct the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper should be done for those who are the children of God. If you're one of God's children, then you're to enjoy the Lord's Supper. In uh, Romans 6, 5, Paul tells us, For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So through the Lord's Supper, we sense this unity, this contrast of death and resurrection. We see that, but it is something we're united in Christ with. We're united in Christ in his death and resurrection. Not only that, we see in verse, verses 5-8 of Romans, Paul tells us, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That shows that while we were sinners, God demonstrated a love towards us and sacrificed his own son, Jesus Christ. So through the Lord's Supper, we're supposed to do it in a worthy manner, in a manner that shows unity with Christ in his death and resurrection, show that we were sinners who have been saved by a great selfless love. Let me read those verses. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, And in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. Before we take the Lord's Supper, I'd like us to take a few moments just to quietly examine ourselves, to make sure that we are a child of God, that we are saved by the grace of God, for a great salvation and a great resurrection. We as Christians have a great hope that one day we will be united with Christ. So let's take a couple moments to think about these verses. And then I'll go ahead and do a prayer, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. In the prayer leading up to the Lord's Supper, I'm going to read from an old Puritan book. It's called The Valley of Vision, and there's a great prayer in there about the Lord's Supper. And let me go ahead and turn to that. God of all good, I bless thee for the means of grace. Teach me to see in them thy loving purposes and the joy and the strength of my soul. You have prepared for me a feast, and though I am unworthy to sit down as guest, I wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness. 
when I hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate but must come to thee in love. By your spirit, enliven my faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend my Savior. When I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death, the bread and the cup, may I ponder why he died and hear Jesus say, I gave my life to purchase yours. I presented myself an offering to expiate your sin. I shed my blood to blot out your guilt. I opened my side to make you clean. I endured your curses to set you free. I bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. May I rightly grasp the breadth and length of this design. Draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the cup, take the bread, and eat and drink. Testify before all men that I do for myself gladly in faith, reverence, and love receive my Lord to be my life, strength, nourishment, joy, and delight. Amen. In verses 23 through 25 is where Paul gives us the unity, the peaceful order of the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. In the supper, Lord God, I remember your eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, and glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may thy indwelling Holy Spirit invigorate my soul until that day when I hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Amen. Thank you to Derek and Courtney Miller for leading us in worship this morning, uh, singing of the goodness of God. We're thankful for um, this couple using their gifts to bless our church. And thank you to Lee for leading us in the time of communion. And as Lee already said, um, just welcome the Black Forest Chapel. Those of you who this is your church home, um, we miss you. We continue to uh, pray for you. The elders and I are praying for you on a regular basis, um, reaching out as we're able to. And if obviously you ever have any needs, please reach out to us because uh, we want to hear how you're doing. Um, we also continue to pray that uh, this 
quarantine, this shutdown order would be lifted soon so that we can gather together as God's people in person uh, versus doing it in our homes. But for now, we thank, we're thankful for the technology and um, that we can actually um, still have some type of service to worship God together, even though while, while we're apart. Um, as we begin this morning, I want to ask you a question. If you could ask God for just one thing, um, just one, now obviously we can ask God for many things, and um, we really have the freedom to ask God for anything, which is good, but God has the freedom to answer in any way that he chooses as well. But if we could ask God for one thing, just for today, what would that thing be? What would you ask him? Just one thing. It's all you had, all you were given is one request. What would that be? In the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of this quarantine craziness, uh, I, I see fatigue setting in in my life and in the life of those around us and people that we talk to. We're tired of this. We're tired of having to put on a hazmat suit to buy a bunch of bananas at the grocery store, right? This is just not fun. We don't want to keep doing this. We're tired of not gathering together. I'm tired of growing this beard. I just want it to be over. We're tired of many things. Maybe it's more serious things for you, financial struggles. Maybe they were happening before the shutdown. Maybe they're happening because of the shutdown. Relationship issues, relational strife in the family. Maybe just isolation or loneliness or physical pain and suffering, chronic illness. Uncertainty about the future. All the hardships that come. And If you could ask God for just one thing in the midst of all of that, what would you ask him for? I want you to think about that. We're going to come back to that question here in a little bit. Um, In the meantime, if you would, turn to Psalm 27. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 27. And the title of the sermon this morning is One Thing I Ask. And we're going to look at one request that David had. Really, it's not that he didn't ask for other things, obviously, but the deepest desire of his heart was being expressed in this psalm. So Psalm 27. And we're going to take a look at um, how David approached being in a very difficult situation. Let's pray together as we open God's word. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege to sing of your goodness, to lift up your name because you provide everything for us. You are everything to us. In, in the chaos of the world, when the ground seems to shift around us and we don't know where to stand or what to do, Lord, you are our rock, you are our refuge, you're our hiding place. You're the only security that we have. You're the only one that we can depend on, truly. And you're the only one that knows us completely. You know the depths of our hearts, you know our, our fears, our anxieties, our limitations, and yet you still love us anyway. Sometimes I wonder, Lord, I I don't understand why you love me, but I'm thankful that you do. And I pray this morning you would help us to have a heart of thankfulness for your love, for your church. And we are truly thankful for your word, that you reveal yourself to us through the pages of Scripture, that your word is living and it's active. It changes us, it transforms us, it feeds us. So 
Please do that now, Lord. Encourage our hearts. We lift ourselves to you. We ask, Holy Spirit, you would illuminate that which you have inspired. Help us to understand. And I pray that you would help us to obey and to apply it to our lives. Thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came and died on a cross for our sins, that we might have life eternal with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 27, we know it's a psalm of David. So David wrote this psalm. We're not 100% sure of the exact context around which he wrote it, um, but we have a pretty good idea. Based on the, um, the plenty of text that we have about his life, and looking at some of the stressors that were on him, an army encamping around him, and war breaking out against him personally, false accusations made against him, enemies surrounding him, um, knowing that there are a couple times in his life where he was on the run. He was a fugitive. He was hiding in caves. He was, he was um, in physical danger. And so the first would be when um, King Saul... Back in 1 Samuel 13, King Saul was rejected as king by God. Saul did not wait on the Lord. Saul did not wait for the prophet Samuel to come and to make the sacrifice. He was supposed to wait seven days. Samuel would come, make the sacrifice, and so then they could go to battle, and the Lord would be with them. And it was the seventh day, and Saul couldn't wait any longer. That 11th hour, and he, 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 he waited for the Lord as long as he was able to. But then he took actions into his own hand. He did the sacrifice himself, and he sinned against God. He was disobedient. And as a result, God rejected Saul. And we see in that same text that as a, as a, as a result of that, God was raising up a man after his own heart. He was raising up David to be the next king. Even though David wasn't even on the scene yet, God was already making plans and moving forward. So later, David was anointed by Samuel, and then we see um, David and, and really in Saul's in, in Saul's home and his palace, and he was a he was a help to him. But then Saul got jealous of David, and then Saul wanted to kill David, and so David was on the run. And so it's possible that this psalm was born out of that experience. The other one could be at the other side of David's life when his son Absalom was um, trying to take the throne by force, and David had to exile from Jerusalem. He had to, he had to flee for his life, because his son was, was um, trying to take the throne. So we, we're not sure exactly, but either way, it's the same situation. Either way, his life was in physical danger. Either way, he had to trust fully on the Lord. He had no control over anything in those situations. All he could do was rely on the Lord. So let's read Psalm 27. We'll read the first half, and then we'll kind of pause and talk a little bit about it, and then we'll read the second half. Verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, 
to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. It's an amazing, I mean, in the context of him being on the run, in physical danger, the situation is very dire, not having the normal comforts of home, not having any assurance that he's going to escape out of this necessarily, knowing that that these types of things happen, that man is jealous, man is hateful, man is murderous, and he's on the run. And look how he begins his time with the Lord here. Look how he begins this song. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Have you ever experienced the, a day where things just start off really well? And maybe this is a lot of days for us. This is, these are days for me. This is a day, yesterday was a, a very stark um, example of this. But, but have you ever had a day where it just starts off really great? Everything, everything is good. The Lord is the, my light and my salvation. And who, who should I fear? Right? He's the stronghold of my life. Who am I going to be afraid of? And you wake up and the sun's shining and the birds are making noise and it's just the world's quiet and the coffee's on strong brew and it tastes really good. And you, know, and, and you open the Bible and just the words of truth just fill you and it just satisfies you and your time of prayer seems to be seamless and it, it might be short. It might, it, maybe there's nothing profound in there, but the relationship seems to be just, just good, right? God hears me. And the day seems, everything seems possible. Now, the circumstances could be the same throughout the entire day. Nothing has changed. All the struggles that we talked about earlier are all still in place. But that, it just starts off great and things feel good. Your experience of God is that of goodness, of protection, safety. And this is, David's just starting this thing off with, God is my light and my salvation. The word light here, defined in the original language, an expression of a joyful, blessed life in which the quality of life is enhanced by God's presence. It's the assurance of God's light, even in a period of difficulty. We, we see often in Scripture that God is a light to his people, right? That even though his people are in darkness or things come against them or the fallenness of the world seems to put pressure. God is the light. He's the escape. He's the, the blessing that comes even when everything around them is difficult. He's, he scatters darkness. Jesus says in John eight twelve, what did Jesus say? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. God is our light. In Micah 7, 8, the prophet says, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. There's hopefulness there. God's going to show us the way. Notice that with light and dark, if you ever think about it, we don't turn off darkness. Darkness is just present. We turn on the light. Right? 
light dispels the darkness. I think I've shared this before, but going to the Cave of the Winds here in the springs and taking a tour of the caves, and there's one area that they, they, they bring us, they kind of herd you in there, and then they shut all the lights off, and you can't see anything, complete darkness. You can't see. It's very, it's kind of, it's kind of freaky just to think. It's almost overwhelming, the, the void of light. You just, there's no sense of, of um, spatial awareness, and you get a little disoriented. And, but as soon as they turn that light back on, even a small little light, the, the darkness is scattered. It's dispelled. You can see. In the midst of our darkness of this world, God is our light. And he reveals himself as such in the scriptures. Jesus has called himself the light of the world. Psalm 119, 105 says, the, Your word is a lamp from my feet, a light on our path. God shows us how to walk in this world. He gives us he kind of walks with the, the flashlight, right? And he shows us where to go and how to take the next step through his word. That's the idea of abiding in Christ, to, to stay close to him, to keep in step with the Holy Spirit, not to veer off to the right or to the left. Why? Because we're going to trip. We're going to hurt ourselves. We can't see when he's not showing us the way. And so regardless of what's happening to David, his day is starting out, Good, because God is his light. His, God is his salvation, his deliverance. He has seen God time and again come through and deliver him from evil. Even as a young boy, as a young shepherd, God delivered him from the paw of the, of the bear, the paw of the lion, right? And that's why he said, and God will deliver me from the, from the hand of this Philistine when he was going to take on Goliath. First Samuel 17. He's been delivered before. He will be delivered again. With God, he is safe. And he is saved. And so, why should he fear anything? He can take on the day. He can jump out the front door. He can get in his, right? He can just move forward with the day and go about his, he doesn't have anything to fear. There could be people waiting in ambush as he steps out of a cave or behind a tree. And he's not fearful of that because his God is with him. His God will show him. His God will save him. The Lord is the stronghold of my life, he says. The word stronghold here means a refuge, a fortified place, a rock. He's the strength of his life, a place for him to go hide. Right? In Exodus 15.2, the song of Moses and Miriam after crossing the Red Sea, watching this amazing, miraculous, supernatural event of God protecting his people as the as the Israelites walk across on dry land and as the Egyptians try to follow, they're consumed by the waters. They say in Exodus 15 too, the Lord is my strength and my defense or the Lord is my strength and my song. He sings over, he protects, he covers. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. When we remember the goodness of God, when we remember the things that God has delivered us from, we can sing about that. We can praise him for that. That's a good thing. And because of who God is and what God has done for David, experience tells David that there is absolutely no one to fear, no one to be afraid of. And so he, he continues on. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it's, they're the ones that are going to stumble. He knows that's going to happen. Even if it hasn't happened yet, he has faith. He's believing in God. 
He knows that God protects the righteous. Verse 3, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. I would think that any normal person, even someone who understands battle and war, someone who's brave and bold, if an army encamps against you, you might have a little bit of fear. It would make sense. At this point in the story, at this point in the morning, at this point in the praise and in the psalm, his heart shall not fear. He's able to stand firm and steadfast. The war rise up against me, an entire war against one man. Yet I will be confident. Why is David confident? Why should he have any confidence at all? Once again, he's remembering the goodness of God. He's remembering what God has done. God is his light and his salvation. God is his stronghold. If you remember back in 1 Samuel 17, the story of, of David, um, when no other man, no other warrior and the whole army of Israel would step forward into the valley to face Goliath, this uncircumcised Philistine, this, this um, savage who's outside of the promise, this person who's defying and blaspheming the God of Israel. He's standing there challenging for one man to come forward, hand-to-hand combat, battle, kind of winner-take-all. No one would go forward. Everyone's shaking in their armor. And then you have this young boy who who loves God, who communes with, who knows his God. And he doesn't see this Philistine, this trained assassin, this trained warrior, his size, his strength, his weapons. He doesn't see them as an obstacle. He sees him as a little bug about to be flicked off the page. Why? Because his God is so much greater. In 1 Samuel 17 Verse 43, and the Philistines, so David's, David's approached, he's on, the, he's on the field of battle, he's approached the Goliath, and the Philistines said, this, said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, who we know are no gods at all. The Philistine said to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, and this, look at this man's confidence. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. The battle is the Lord's. David's act was an act of faith, and he he decidedly wanted to glorify his God. It's, It's an amazing story. And we don't want to miss the best part. So I'm just going to finish the, the good part, right? We don't want to just leave us hanging here. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, 
David ran quickly toward the battle line. There was no hesitation. There was no second guessing. Maybe I made a mistake here. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And so back to our psalm, Psalm 27, when he says, yet I will be confident. This is not an arrogance. This is not, I've got some good weapons here. I, 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 found, a, I found a pretty good sword I think I can use. I've been sharpening that, and I've been working on my hand-to-hand skills, and I've got some good camouflage that I just made, and I think I can, I can last longer. I think I, can, I think I can maybe make a run at it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm faster than these guys. I'm, I, he's, he's, not, he's, not, he's not putting all his, his courage, his boldness, his, um, his confidence in himself. He's putting his confidence in the Lord. He knows who this God is. He, he's not going to fear anything. The Lord is his light and his salvation. God has delivered him. He's been a place of refuge for him in the past. And so can you see why in the midst of all of this, because he, he's remembering these experiences, he knows who his God is. Can you see in the midst of all this, why, why he would ask for one thing like this? Why would he would ask for this one thing to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? To inquire, to seek him in his temple? It doesn't sound like a good battle strategy. right? It doesn't sound like a good escape plan. In the middle of all of this, false accusations, people coming after him, armies encamping around him, war breaking out against him. What would be the one thing you would ask for in the midst of all that? Maybe an earthquake to swallow up the enemies, right? Maybe some some lightning, maybe a bigger sword. Just give me the skill to do some really awesome jujitsu just for like five minutes, Lord. That's all I need to take out this army. Make me invisible so I can walk through the camp. Anything, any type of strategy or weapon would make sense. Strike down your enemies, Father. But what does he ask for? One thing I've asked of the Lord, in the midst of all this, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. He just wants to be with God. He just wants God's presence. The temple was the visible expression of God's presence among his people. And David wants, he wants, just wants to be with God. He just wants to talk with him and walk with him and be close to him. Because if he's close to God, if he's communing with God, nothing can touch him. Nothing. So actually, it is the best strategy in the midst of a life-threatening situation. Not only does he want to just dwell in the house of God, just to get out of the the heat of the day, to get out of the the, the visibility of the enemy, not only does he want to just kind of hide away in God's house and be kind of under his protection, he wants to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. This is about wanting more of God, not just what God gives him. He wants just to be with him because of his beauty, because of all the great attributes of God, because of the goodness of God. The harmony of all of God's attributes are just wound up in his beauty. To gaze on that, to think about that. If you just take some time and think about who God is, what he has done 
If we read about him in the scriptures and you just watch this God, our God, from creation to the end of Revelation and the promise of Jesus' return, if you just look at this beautiful plan of redemption and sending his son Jesus Christ to die for your sins, that we can have life with him eternal and the promise and the hope of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth and all that God has done, has done to protect his people, all the promises that he has kept. If you think about all of the goodness of God, then you're just going to want to sit there and, and gaze into his beauty. You're just going to want to think about those things. I've had a really just difficult week, as I know many of you have. I've talked to some of you on the phone, and um, the, this shutdown, this this virus, and all the collateral damage that will continue on for a while, probably. Um, it is difficult. It is hard. It is straining us. It is creating fatigue and frustration, and even people that weren't our, you know, people that we'd had no contention or problems with before, suddenly. You know, if you walk too close to someone, someone's upset at you. And if you're not wearing a mask and trying, people trying to get back to work and government overreach or government protection and trying to find that balance and, and financial strain that comes with it and just uncertainty about everything, it's just frustrating. I've had a very difficult week. My family's had a difficult week, as many of you have. And this, this past week, um, just came out here one day to the church and it's quiet here. And I was out, um, I have a new hobby now. I line up pine cones and I, I see how far I can kick them down the, down the driveway. It's kind of fun. I'm sure Rick has done this a million times. Yeah. So I line up pine cones and I try not to pull any muscles because, you know, you try to get a good kick, but there's no weight that you're hitting. So, you know, it's got to stretch out a little bit beforehand. But I'm just kicking pine cones down the, down the driveway and I'm just walking and praying. And, you know, you know, it was really nice this week and the sun was out and sun's on my face. And I can just sit and watching the bees kind of uh, start to come out with the flowers and um, just the smell of pine. It was just really peaceful. And it was, it was a moment that I was just able to separate from the, from the, the tension and the struggle and the difficulty of the week and, and just be quiet for a minute and think about little things and think about the Lord. And then I start to think about all the little things that he has done for me. And some of the big things that he's done for me. And I'm just suddenly overwhelmed with thankfulness. And I think about his beauty and that look at the colors that he's created. And it, it just took a moment of pausing and, and considering that God was more important in that moment. So just some quiet time with him might be more important than, than another text, than another email, than another phone call, than worrying about another thing I can't control. And so I just spend some time with him and kicking some pine cones and just talking with him. And like, hey, Lord, really you grew this tree out of, a, out of one of these little pine cones? How does that work? And just amazed. And looking at our building and just thinking about how amazing the church is and what he has, he has built through his son that Jesus died so that we could become a people, that we are his people, and that he loves us that much. And so it just becomes a ripple effect of thankfulness and of prayer, and it's, it's, it was really just fun. And I got to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, even for a moment. And what was really interesting was in that, in that time, I didn't ask for anything else. 
I have my time of prayer where I'm asking for my the things that I need, and that's good. And, but this was different. I wasn't asking for help with this, or please fix that, or please give me this, or please keep that away, Lord, or please protect me from this. And what do I do, Lord? I wasn't lamenting the uncertainties of the future. Instead, I was just enjoying my God. And although it was a short time, it, it carried into the rest of my day. And David is expressing his experience of God's beauty by wanting more of it, just wanting to be in his presence. In the middle of all this chaos, in the middle of people trying to kill him, he just wants to hang out with his father, gaze on his beauty. And he says in verse 5, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. Notice that the day of trouble doesn't go away. The day of trouble is still there, but God provides shelter. That's the life. That's the walk that we have. That's the, the struggle on this earth and in this fallenness. God's not going to remove all the difficulties. He's not going to remove all the bad things, but he's going to provide a place of protection. He's going to provide a refuge, a place of rest for us, and that's in him, and that's in his son. And God will lift him high upon a rock, and David can't help but just rejoice as it relates to all of that. He's a single-minded man, and he's able to focus on the things that are important. But here's the the human piece of it, the human component that I think we can all um, relate to when you come to the second half of this psalm. You'll notice that the tone kind of changes. There almost seems to be a mood shift in David's life. So the day starts up, Great, right? Sun shining, birds chirping, coffee's brewing, everything's good, everything feels good, everything, the time in the word is good, the day seems like we can take it kind of by storm, and we, we have a handle on this because God's with us. And then for whatever reason, there's kind of a, a shifting, maybe a searching of the heart, maybe there's a little bit of doubt that comes in. Maybe God removes a little bit of his consolation and a little bit of his, the sense of his presence. And this is really where faith is developed, isn't it? God gives us good things. He strengthens us. He encourages us. And then he allows us to struggle a bit more. And we might ask, Lord, why? Why, why not just give me an easy day? Why not just let things be easy? And God might ask us, well, why not just be holy then? Just be holy. Well, he knows we're limited, and we still struggle with sin, and so he allows certain things as part of our sanctification. And so we go from this amazing praise, this, the Lord is my light and my salvation, my stronghold. I'm not going to fear anybody. The, the, the people are encamped around me. War is rising up against me, but I'm confident. And then in verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Why would he be even talking about this? He didn't have any sense of doubt earlier. Why is he asking God not to cast him off, not to forsake him? not to turn him away in anger. What, what has changed in this psalm? What is the shift? Well, I, th- I think, once again, I think we just go through 
Even in the course of one day, perhaps this was not written in one moment or in one day. Perhaps it was written over the season of him being on the run. I don't know. Either way, there's a rhythm to human life and human experience. And even in the course of one day, yesterday was, was a Psalm 27 day for me in a way that was extremely stark and, and profound. And I, I, I just, I don't even know why I'm standing here sharing the sermon with you. It was that difficult by the end of the day. It's one of those days where I'm so thankful to be alive, Lord. Thank you that you use me, Lord. You were so good, Father. I love your presence and all that you have done. And you're, you're just, I'm just overwhelmed by your presence. I can't believe you get, I get to preach your word. I can't believe you use me in this way. I can't believe my, my amazing family. And I can't believe you've given us work to do. And I can't. It's just my, my house is just beautiful, and thank you so much for all you give me, and my car runs fine, and there's, there's plenty of food on the table, and I'm just thankful for everything. And then by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it's, Lord, why was I born? What's the purpose of my life, right? That's the extreme. That's how it feels. I, I, I can't believe you want to use me. I'm not worthy of being used. See, it's the same words, it's just the heart's changing here because I doubt and I fear and this is too heavy of a responsibility and I, I shouldn't be doing this, Lord. And why would you pick me? And why do you love me? And, and I, I, this house is just suffocating and there's no, good, I, there's no good food that I really want right now. And my, man, my car's old and I wish I could get a new car, right? And all this work you have for me to do, Lord, it's too much, and there's no help. And You go from a, this, this mountaintop, right, and then you just tumble down back into the valley, and, and then fear and doubt and temptations start to take, take shape around you. The clouds form, and you come back to that coffee pot, and suddenly there's just grounds left in there, and it's disgusting. What happened to my awesome coffee, Lord? It was perfect this morning, and now look at it. Right? Everything just feels so heavy and terrible. And just hours before, you were praising and praying and reading the word, and you were confident. And you forget what he's done. And all you can see is the, the giant in front of you. You see the giant, and you see his, his sword and his spear and his javelin, and you don't, what am I going to do with this sling and these, these few stones? This is, I need to run. I can't do this. So David's, his, his, his verbiage changes a bit. Hear me, O Lord. Well, he was talking to God. He was communing with God. All he wanted to do was be in his presence. Now he's, hear me, O Lord, as if somehow God's not hearing him. He's crying aloud, be gracious, answer me. Lord, you said, seek my face, and so my heart says to you, truly, Lord, your face, Lord, do I seek. So don't hide your face from me, Father. Why are you hiding your face from me? You asked me to seek your face. I'm seeking your face. Lord, you, you told me this morning to, to be, in your, be in your word and, and to be a, a follower of Jesus. I have to have faith, and so I did that this morning, and I woke up early, and I had my quiet time, and I spent time in prayer, and I did all the things you asked me to do. I'm really, truly, I'm trying, Father. I don't want to give in to temptation again. I don't want to give in to fear again. I'm really trying, Lord. You told me to seek your face, so I'm seeking it. So don't hide your face from me. Why does it seem like you just disappeared on me? 
Don't turn away in anger, please, Father. Forgive me of my sin. You've been my help, Lord. Don't cast me off. Don't forsake me, O God of my salvation. My, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but, but the Lord will take me in. And you see David asking of the Lord in verse 11 for direction, and in verse 12 for deliverance again. Teach me your way, O Lord. And lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Help me, Father. Teach me your way. Because right now, I want to I do something on my own in my flesh. I, I want to I make something happen. I want to run or I want to attack or I want to defend myself. So teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Don't let me veer off. You can see he's struggling with something. He's struggling with some moment where, where he needs God's help for direction again. Even though moments before, as we're reading, he clearly knows where he should be, just in God's presence, just sitting with him. Verse 12, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for the false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. He's asking for deliverance. Well, he was just praising God for being his salvation. He's just rem- Remember all, all the, the flashes of, of all the, the memories of God delivering him from amazing situations and events and And if there's adversaries in front of him, false witnesses, and don't give me up to them, Lord. A moment ago, he was walking in victory before it even happened, by faith. Now he's asking God, please don't let them have me, Lord. Have you ever had a day like that? Maybe today's a day like that? Everything starts out really well and strong, and by the end of the day... Where is God? Please help me. I think the one thing that I forget is that God allows that, that moment, that hour, that season of, of maybe doubt, of removing some of his blessing or consolations or maybe the, the sense of his presence so that we would seek him again, so that we would seek him, not just the things he does for us, not just the things he gives to us, but that we would truly be after him. It, it exposes our heart. It exposes our sin. And that's a good thing. That's part of the sanctification process, how we become more like his son, to rely on him alone. Jesus didn't do anything he didn't see the Father doing first. He didn't say anything that the Father didn't give him to say. Fully connected, fully in unity with the Father. Not on his own agenda. To the point where he asked his Father to take the cup from him of suffering. But he said, not my will, but your will be done. And he went to the cross and we're thankful that he did. And so after this moment of perhaps doubt, crying back out to God, please help me, Lord, verse 13, we have an infusion of faith again. And we see David say, I believe, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Lord, I I trust you. 
I do. And I believe I'm going to see your goodness again and be able to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And how does he do that? How does he shore up his faith? How does he act on this belief in a way that's helpful, that moves him back into a place like we saw at the beginning of the psalm? Verse 14 is really the application for David and for us as well. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Waiting is one of those tricky things, isn't it? How, how do we wait? So for, for us as God's people, as we are overwhelmed at times, and maybe even in the second half of our day, we're overwhelmed with all the pressures and the struggles. And we cry out to God and we ask him for help. And, and we, we muster up enough, by, thankfully by his grace and by the spirit of God, we, we muster up enough of faith and we believe, I believe God's going to help. I believe he's going to come through. I'm struggling, Lord, help me in my disbelief. But I believe he will come through. And we decide to wait on the Lord and not act rashly, not move ahead like Saul did on his own timing, fearing that, that in that 11th hour that God was not going to come through and taking matters into his own hands and being rejected by God, disobeying God. We don't want to be like Saul. We don't want to give in to that temptation so how do we wait for him? And waiting, as a Christian, one of, our, one of our excuses or one of the ways that we twist waiting for God is that um, often we know what we're supposed to be doing. We have a clear directive from the, from the Lord in Scripture. We know we're supposed to be doing something. And yet we say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait on that for a while. I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray about that. That's our, our functional way of waiting Praying about things is, is great, but once you know what you're supposed to do, continuing to pray about them and wait is a sin of omission. You're not doing what God's asked you to do. You know what you're supposed to do. And so we use waiting as some pious, uh, religious way of satisfying our own guilt. We justify our inaction by saying, I'm waiting on the Lord. We need to get rid of that. That's not waiting on the Lord. That's spiritual apathy, that's laziness perhaps, that's defiance of something that is known to us that we're supposed to be doing. On the other side of it, there's that justification, that Saul-like personality. Well, I waited long enough. I've been praying this whole time. I've waited to the 11th hour, and I'm done waiting. I've, something has to be done. I've got to move. But really, it's, it's, a, it's an expression of your own pride. It's an expression of your own flesh. You wanted to do it this way anyway. You waited out a period of time that was satisfactory in your mind, but you're going to move forward anyway, whether the Lord's blessing it or not. Right? Those are two extremes, but sometimes we live in the extremes, and it's not helpful or healthy for us. So how is David waiting on the Lord? What does the word wait even mean? The word wait here means to, to, to expect, to be expectant, to look for the Lord, to, to patiently be looking for the Lord. Right? It's to expect him to do something. In Psalm 40, verse 1, I love, I love this, this simple verse, but it speaks to how David waits. This is also a psalm of David. It says, Psalm 40, verse 1, it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. 
So I waited the same word for wait here. I waited patiently, expectantly. I was looking for the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. God heard him. What did he hear? His cry. How was David waiting? Was he sitting in a chair, staring at a wall, hoping that God was going to show up? Looking at the clock. No. Was he, did he say a quick prayer and then go about his business and it didn't, God didn't show up, so I guess I'll, no. He was crying out to God. He was in prayer. He was talking to God that whole time. He was asking him for help, probably even asking him for the strength to wait patiently, right? But he was crying out to him. That's how he was waiting. It was an active waiting, but it was a dependent, abiding type of waiting. As much as we're living in a pandemic, if you will, with this virus, unfortunately, I see far too often that we're in a pandemic of prayerlessness in the church. And it's not just, you know, a cute little tagline because there's two Ps involved. That's not the point here. You can write that down. But the the truth of the matter is that, that based on statistics, and I'm looking at the Pew research reports and looking at Barna research groups and and then talking to people and Seen a consistent kind of head down, guilt ridden reply when you're asked about your prayer life, right? So whether it's a formal um, research study or survey, or whether it's informal and just talking to people, it seems that everyone struggles with prayer. They wish they had a different. They wish they prayed more. They wish it was more life giving to them. We're supposed to be praying without ceasing. First Thessalonians 5.17, we're supposed to be continuing a spirit of prayer. And I think there's, there's lots of problems that we have um, inherited maybe through our faith, through, um, through our families, through different denominations or whatever it is. We, we, we learn prayer by it being modeled for us. And some of us just haven't maybe learned a healthy way to pray. We just don't know how to. And Even the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, because they saw this man having this relationship. They saw these words coming out of his mouth, and they saw this, this incredible communion with God, and they wanted that. And so they asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. Right? And for us, we, somehow, some way, we, we've, we've learned how to pray where and the average, the average amount of prayer that, that a Christian prays per day based on some of these stats is about 10 minutes a day. The average pastor about 30 minutes because they got to pray for all the people in the church, right? That's, that's what they actually said. Half of their prayer time is just the list of people. But, and that could be the formal time of prayer where you sit down with your list and about 10 minutes a day prefer a Christian. Can they, can they really, can you quantify all the other times in the day when you're praying? Probably not. But still, 10 minutes of time with the Lord. And you might say, well, it's, it's quality time, right? It's not about the quantity. It's about the quality. I don't know anything, any relationship that I have that can be of any quality in just 10 minutes, right? Can you go out to dinner with your spouse or with your family and in 10 minutes talk about everything you need to talk about and spend time together? 
Now, if you do that, you're going to have to spend 10 minutes with a counselor because your, your relationship's not going to last very long, right? 10 minutes is, is nothing. If your boss wants to have a meeting with your group or with your department and you tell them, well, I can give you 10 minutes, right? is that going to fly in your, in your job? Or is, is 10 minutes going to be enough for a team? Probably not. Does your workout last more than 10 minutes? Do you watch just 10 minutes of TV a day? Like, we don't do anything for just, it doesn't make any sense, but yeah, that's the average for the Christian. To sit down and talk to the living God of the universe, the one who made you, the one who knows you, the one who loves you, the one who sent his son for you, the one who is sending you out on mission, and you're supposed to know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to have peace in just 10 minutes? No, once again, it's not about the the minutes and the seconds here. It's about the relationship. Just realistically, it takes time to get to know someone, to learn to hear their voice. If I've only met you for a short time and you called me and I didn't know it was you calling and you just said hello and I'm supposed to identify you by your voice, I'm not going to be able to do that. I don't know you well enough yet if I just met you. I only talked to you for 10 minutes. But my wife, my, my sons, if they call and say, hey, or hey, dad, or hey, Mike, I know who they are. Just by the sound of their voice, I know who they are. Why? Because there's a relationship. I know them. I've spent time with them. We've, had, we've done life together. So waiting on the Lord is, is a crying out. It's a, it's a prayer-filled waiting. If you struggle with prayerlessness, there's a lot of, well, there's, there's, there's many things that could be part of that problem. Part of it could just be a, a, a sin issue in your life. You haven't confessed your sin. You haven't walked in obedience. Why would God give you any more of himself, any more revelation? Why would he listen? As a good father, why would he keep listening to, this, to a child who is not being obedient, who's not obeying his father? Do you just keep giving your children things when they're not being obedient? No. We know that's not a loving act. Maybe you're lazy. Maybe you're undisciplined. Many of us are. You need to reprioritize your life. Maybe you lack faith. We know that a double-minded man Shouldn't expect to have his prayers answered. We, we pray to God, but then we don't believe that he's going to do anything about it. We see that in the scriptures as well. Maybe we're praying through idols, praying with the wrong motives. Even Jesus, when he's talking in John 15 about, about prayer, ask anything in my name and it will be given to you, but you need to first abide with me. You need to be abiding with me, walking with me, communing with me. Then you're going to know my will, and you can ask anything in my name. I'm going to give it to you. It's predicated on our walk with him and our obedience to him. So waiting on the Lord is key for David. It's key for us. And what happens when you wait? This last, last application here. What happens when you wait on the Lord? You gain strength from the Lord. You're strengthened by him. We see David say, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. See that little wait, wait for the Lord sandwich 
in the psalm? What happens in there is that God strengthens you. Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their what? Their strength. You see how that works? Because if you're not waiting for him and you're acting impulsively and you're acting on your own, that's exhausting because all the pressure's on you. You have to figure it out. The responsibility is on you. But if you wait for the Lord, he will use you, but the responsibility is on him. It's his battle. He'll fight it for you. And you gain strength from that. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. Have you ever gone for a run and not gotten tired? <laughs> you probably have gotten tired. Physically, we're limited. But this type of, this imagery here is, is, is running with the Lord, is moving with him, being on mission with him. He renews our strength when we wait on him. So when the darkness kind of closes in, seems to move in, all the comfort, all the hope that you have is scattered, just wait. Don't react. Just wait. Read the word. Remember the promises of God. Remember his goodness, that he loves you. Pray as you're able. I know in those moments sometimes you don't even want to pray. But you need to. You need to believe and say, Lord, I don't want to. I'm having, I'm having a real hard time right now not blaming you. I want to trust you, Father. So please help me. Forgive me of my unbelief. Please give me strength just to get through the next moment, through the next hour. And you cry out to him and you wait for him to save the day. And it says, be strong. And this word strong here means it's a strengthening or a hardening of the self. So we can harden our hearts against God like Pharaoh had done. Or we can harden ourselves towards God. It's an interesting, right? We're strengthening ourselves. We're, we're having this resolve about who God is, and we're strengthening ourselves against temptation, against sin, against despair, against discouragement. We're protecting ourselves. We're strengthening. We're hardening ourselves for the battle that's ahead. Just take courage. This word courage means to be alert, to be steadfastly minded. Ultimately, we, we, we have to pray as we wait. Otherwise, we have no hope. We have to depend as we wait. Otherwise, we're going to take action in our own hands. And if God is God, if God is who he says he is, if he's the God of the universe, the God has done all these good things, this beautiful God with all his amazing attributes, this God who loves us to the point of sending his son, if God is God, why would we do anything but pray? Because he's sovereign, he's powerful, he can actually do something about everything. David believes he shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In Titus chapter 3, Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness 
and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He is our hope. The goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared and he saved us. We have seen the goodness of God in the land of the living, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you love us, you care for us, you see all of our need. And as a good father, sometimes you let us struggle a bit. You teach us to depend on you. You want us to be holy as you are. We were not created for independence. We were created to be fully dependent on you, to have this amazing relationship and to enjoy you. Thank you, Father, for that. Help us in our weakness, our limitation. Help us, Lord, when our day starts out like a Psalm 27, 1 through 6, and by the afternoon we're, we're crying out to you, asking if you even hear us, like verse 7. Please always bring us back by the end of the day, Lord, where we believe again that we will see your goodness and that we choose to wait for you and to be strengthened by you. We thank you, Father, for your presence. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that indwells us. Help us to honor you and to glorify you in our day. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.